The following is a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Nice pour. Oh, yeah. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Winemakers. John Meyer is here as your host, and Brian Casey and Bart Hansen with us, and Larry Brooks, who asked that he be introduced as consulting winemaker. But, man, you've got a long, long history, and it's going to be really interesting to get into it, Larry. Thanks for coming. Yeah, I think I just did my 44th California vintage this year. Yeah, I, I, I would have been 45, except good, I, I missed 15. <laughs> I've only missed one vintage since I started. So this um, this this show came about because a friend of the pod, Mike Cox, oh, yeah. um, Mike had sent a message and asked if we'd ever met. And I said no, but I was familiar who you were and all of your you know time spent in the business. And he said that you were writing a book. Yeah, I've actually, I started, when I left Tolosa in 15, they gave me a year's severance, a full year's salary, a severance, which was quite generous of them. Um, and my wife had been bugging me for years about writing a book. She wanted me to write a self-help philosophical work because she thinks that the, that's that's what she's interested in. So that's what she wanted me to write. But the only thing I was I thought I was qualified to write about was the craft of winemaking, wine growing. And I also have a beginning, uh, oh, probably about 10 years or so ago, I got deeply, deeply involved in sensory evaluation as a science, the science of tasting. So the first third of the book is focused around technically how do you taste? How do you become a professional or expert taster? Are you, where did you pull that information from? Or is it just your own, not related to like when people are taking W set? Yeah, um, well, I'd always, you know, if you're a winemaker, you're tasting constantly. Um, I, my philosophy had always been in making reserves that you taste every single barrel, you do a true barrel select. And so it, it, a huge volume of tasting is involved. And I also, in some projects, acted as, uh, I guess what you would call a negotiant, where you're literally tasting hundreds and hundreds of wines a week and picking out the the best and, and doing blends and stuff like that. So tasting was a big part of my like any winemaker, a big part of my daily practice. And uh, one of the head of the Cal Poly's uh, uh, VIT and Enology program approached me in like 13 or 14, I don't remember, about 10 years ago. And uh, they had someone set to teach the sensory evaluation class, and then the guy couldn't get a visa. He was uh, uh, an Argentinian, I think. He's now a, a professor there. And so they were in the lurch, and, and she said, do you have the time and interest in teaching this course? And I said, as long as I can develop my own syllabus and teach it in my own way. She said, you can do whatever you want as long as you teach this course. And do you know who Alexander Schmidt is? He's a a, a French guy. He started as a perfumer and then um, when Wait, what's a perfumer? He's a professional perfumer. He went to he creates perfumes. Um, he, there's a perfume school in Paris and one of grasses. Brian's, totally Brian's interested. No, I just never heard of that job. I know that sometimes, oh, yeah, it's, um, a job. it's one of the hardest crafts in the world to learn. Like the, it's harder to get into that than to get into Princeton, to get in that Paris perfume school. Wow. Yeah. 
And you have to apparently start when you're like a teenager to really become good at it. It's of the, of the flavor arts, perfumer is the highest level. Well, it's weird because it's not based on taste. It's based aroma. strictly on aroma. So is tasting. It's all aroma. Like Hardy Wallace. Huh. He's into it. It's uh, perfuming has been my yeah. hobby for more than 20 years. I make perfumes at home. Seriously? I've spent tens of thousands of dollars on ingredients. It's a ridiculous hobby, but and it's a good one for a winemaker. It really sharpens your sense of taste. And I'm sorry, we're going to go down this no, little right. rabbit hole for a rabbit second, but right. um, where do you get the base? Cause the, you use, I use a, we use uh, alcohol. I use uh, uh, highly distilled uh, wine spirits, like 98 right. proof white brandy is what I use as the base. Right. But the, all the I use mostly natural oils and essences. I use some synthetic aldehydes and stuff. But mm-hmm. the old, you know, pre World War II was almost all natural substances. I'm very interested in those kind of older forms of perfume. And now, what do you, what do you do with those? Well, like I make perfumes for fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then give them to friends and family. Yeah, and- like, like um, I would make them for my sisters. I made my brother a clone once. It's mm-hmm. it's incredibly difficult and labor intensive like a professional perfumer might only make like two or three perfumes in a year and you never make large batches obviously. no i make tiny batches the ingredients are insanely expensive a little 10 mil of rose oil could be a couple hundred dollars it's more expensive than gold and so when you need your neutral grape spirit do you call Ciotti and say hey i need some samples (laughs) exactly (laughs) because they sell it in 55 gallon drums (laughs) and you could videl is there's two big producers videl and one other I, I use Vidal. Yeah. It, it spell, it's pretty pleasant, actually, yeah. as a base. You, and it was the traditional base in France. You can't use it anymore because of the tax. There's a lot of tax on grape-based uh, brandies in France, so they don't use. Uh, hmm. But that was before those taxes were. That's that awesome. was the preferred base for making perfumes. Was okay, brandy. and then the the real difference between tasting like a psalm would be trained to taste and a winemaker would be you're in a very different stage of the wine, right? Because I, always, I, I still sit in sometimes on those, you know, the, the little blending things or when people pull barrel samples. Right. And it's very different from when you've had a finished wine that has been in barrel a year and then in bottle for 14 months or whatever. And tasting stuff right out of barrel is a really different experience. It, it is. It's, it's, it's much uh, more difficult to taste young wines. They're, yeah. they're more abrasive, you might say. They're, they're not in a finished state. They're raw, as, yeah. as it were. You have to look, be able to look through things at times. Yeah. And yeah, you, yeah, you have to be able, and it, they're also in a very strong dynamic, which um, I learned when I was um, doing negotiant type winemaking with Chardonnay. And I, I remember it was a project I was working on with Steve Dooley. It was called Echelon. And uh, we were both making wines and buying wines, and we'd made more wines than we needed. We were going to sell, I think we had 70,000 gallons we wanted to sell. And we had this tank that we both agreed that was our least favorite, and we decided we were going to sell that. But just to make sure, at that time, Enologics. Do you know Enologics? Enologics, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Leo at that time was offering a, a Chardonnay analysis. He doesn't anymore, I don't believe. He couldn't. Leo McClough? Leo, yeah, Leo's been on the show uh, before. Yeah, okay. yeah he, couldn't, he couldn't make any money selling Chardonnay analysis, so he only does red wine analysis now. But at that time, he offered a Chardonnay quality analysis. So just to like back ourselves up, we sent all of the wines. I think we had eight or nine that big batches that we'd made. 
and had him analyze it. And the one that Steve and I had agreed was our least favorite and we were going to bulk out had the most flavor in it. We, it was just masked at that huh. time. And we, between the two of us at that time, we probably had like close to 50 years of Chardonnay making experience between us and it yeah. tasted thousands and thousands and thousands of Chardonnays and we still got it wrong. It was a, it was a real eye-opening experience about how quickly, especially white wines, can change and you can't trust anyone tasting. You have to just kind of trust the grape source, your own techniques, and taste it regularly until it shows itself. And it can be really late in the wine's process. Like, I've made Chardonnays that I didn't really know what I had to like, a year after I'd bottled it. Right. Where so, I just thought, eh, it's not that like, good. And then, like, weird. So, 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 yeah. so I, I, I just want to interrupt for one second. Steve, when, I mean, Larry, when we talked about this, you said that you were going to bring a couple bottles of Chardonnay because I want to make sure we acknowledge what we're tasting. And what you said to me was, I'll probably bring a couple Chardonnays I've made. I don't think... Any other wine illustrates the winemaker's intention more than Chardonnay. Yeah, because there's so little there in the grape. It's all the flavors of winemaking, more or less. It's a good way to think about it. Right. Whereas red wines are the flavor of the vineyard, and you, the quality of red wine is all in the vineyard. Your job as a winemaker is just make sure you don't screw it up. Right. And you, you, you can just execute the most classic 200-year-old basic French winemaking model on great grapes and you'll get great wine with Char- with chardonnay you can't do that you've really got to make the wine you've got to be able to use the correct yeast the um the vineyard source is incredibly important as well but and you say that more so than other white wines too yeah because there's it's it, chardonnay is so neutral right. basically so yeah. all the nuance of of how you get the little bit of flavors there in balance balancing the oak is particularly difficult and something that Actually, when I was consulting with Enologics for a couple of years and working with Saintsbury, when Byron Kasugi was at Saintsbury, we kind of figured out how to integrate oak into Chardonnay. And it's something that they've been doing in Burgundy forever. We we could have just, you know, been smart and like gone back to the what most white Burgundy producers were doing, which is that after the barrel aging, after a year or so in barrel, you move it with the lees out into a neutral container, and then it's got to sit there for another six or eight months. A and neutral then, container like? Like either stainless steel or it could be lined concrete, glass, anything. It, right. It's got to be uh, no you know, oxygen-free, anaerobic. Okay. And, uh, and that way you retain the fruit character, but the, uh, the oak just melds. It just, it's like magic. It, and it, it won't happen if you leave it in the barrel. It just keeps getting ochre, yeah. ochre and drying out and the fruit diminishes. But when it sits there on the yeast after the barrel aging, some something happens. I don't, nobody knows what it is. Right. But you get this integration. You get this broadening of the mid-palate that's not structural. It's I don't even know how to describe it, but it just becomes richer and richer through the mid-palate. And not stirring because you're trying to keep you it. You want to stir it a little bit. You want probably on about a six- or eight-week basis. What you can, it's same when you're making like this, the second wine, the, the, the Bien Nacido, that's largely stainless, uh, fermented, and aged. And whenever you've got a wine in a, uh, an anaerobic condition, you got to like stir it and taste it on a four to eight week. You can just, you just taste it regularly. And when, as soon as you see the fruit start to diminish a little, it means that the sulfide, reduced sulfur is coming up, is right. what it means. And you got to lift the leaves up and make sure it right. stays. You right. just get a teeny bit of oxygen in there to balance it out. Yeah. yeah, things like that. So the like the nuances of technique, you you can't make a. I don't believe you can make a delicious 
a barrel fermented Chardonnay without taking it into that second year of aging. So it's very, very expensive. And that's the first time I've consuming. ever heard anyone say that. The first guy to do it. Uh, I mean, I'm not a winemaker, but yeah, I, yeah. but it's interesting that I've never. It's heard standard anyone. practice in Burgundy. It's like how all their, you know. It's, White burgundies are made. So it's really interesting. I share space with um, winemaker Jamie Kutch. And that's that's exactly what Jamie does, is he hmm. um, keeps it in a barrel and then pulls it out at some point when he can and keeps it in tank and topped up tank. Um, and he's actually, for his, what he's trying to accomplish, he wants to get a little reduction. Mm-hmm. And he feels like he's that's where he gets it in is in the tank. Yeah, yeah, and, absolutely. And, and he always talks about there's times where it works and times where it doesn't. Yeah. Um, chasing that that dragon, so to speak, right? Well, sure, and also because there's... And there's a fine line on that reduction. And there's also, there's more than 30 different reduced sulfur compounds in wine, so some of them can be good and some of them not so good, mm-hmm. and the levels, it's a very complicated part of wine chemistry, right. and, it's, you, and, you, and you're just doing it by taste. I mean, that's the only way you can make those decisions. Do you... Do you think that they were doing that in Burgundy initially because they needed the barrels for the next harvest, and so they were moving it into a different vessel, and then just went, "Oh, this is." I, you know, I don't know. I never asked. Um, uh, when I left the, my role at Shalone as executive winemaker, again, I had a, uh, I had to sign a non compete agreement and not work for a year because they were convinced I was going somewhere else, and I wasn't. And I was like, "Okay, fine, I'll sign this." You know, they gave me a bunch of money. Um, that always helps. It does. It makes it much <laughs> yeah. less painful. Um, and so I had a lot of time on my hand, and I did a deep, deep dive into uh, Chardonnay techniques. It, it always fascinated me. And I started uh, talking to California winemakers. And do you know Remington Norman's book on uh, Burgundy? Mm-hmm. Well, he it's one of the few wine books where they go deeply into technique. And so I just read through that book and and was what are these guys doing with Chardonnay and every single one of them was doing that technique I just described and I thought you know farmers are cheap and they're pragmatic and I'm like they're not going to have a wine taking up space in their cellar unless something really profound is happening during that that period um and that's when uh and then I uh I actually the first consulting a job when I started working again after the year was up was with uh, Heights, and they wanted me to help them with Chardonnay. Um, and so I said, I want you to try this, and they wouldn't do it. It was really frustrating. And what was their problem? Well, the, you know, like most people, when they hire a consultant, they want you to change one or two things. And I, like, said, there's, like, 50 things you have to change in your, in your Chardonnay winemaking. But we've always done it They're this right. way. And they did, a, they did a lot of it, but they wouldn't follow me all the way on this. And they wanted yeah. to bottle, and they wanted it out of the cellar and in the bottle, you know, to make room for the next vintage. That's yeah. why very few people use this technique because right. you, that right. tank could be used for the next vintage. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, it's quite expensive to do that. Um, so that, uh, and then, uh, but a bio- not, to man- not to man, not to mention managing empty barrels. Right. Once you've emptied them. Right. Yeah, so, so cause you're, you're on 18 months. No, no, no. You're filling those up again. I'm, you're right. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. but Byron at uh, St. Spirit at that time, he'd been trying to make a higher reserve Chardonnay and he'd been trying to do it with extra aging in the barrel. And, and I talked to him, I said, let's try this. And we did. And it really worked. Mm. And then, Almost all the clients, and with my own wines after that, if it was a full barrel fermented, and I like oak flavor, I just don't like it to stick out. Like yeah. this has like close to fifty percent new oak, and and it 
it doesn't read as oaky. Well, it got so off track with mass-produced Chardonnay, buttery, oaky, heavy back in what? It was like the mid-80s and early 90s. Well, that still still continues to uh, a degree, not as universal as it was. But if everybody, you know, if anybody has a negative aspect of Chardonnay, that's probably where they get it. These are so different. Beautiful wines. Mm. And I'm doing an A-B test, by the way, just between the two. Well, very different vineyards, and I use a very different technique um, on this one. This one is almost entirely stainless, fermented, and aged. And in that case, because this one has has virtually no oak. Well, they're both very crisp. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Not heavy at all, which is nice. Yeah. A few years back, it was actually... I think it was an English wine writer. I don't. Rec- I don't remember what it was. It was, it was someone we, we were tasting at Tolosa together, and I made this style of wine when I was at Tolosa as well. And he said, he said, he says, I don't like. I don't even like California Chardonnay. He said, but I like this wine. I said, good. <laughs> it's like California Chardonnay was not the model for this right. wine. <laughs> White Burgundy, was. pretty much. Though you know. Um, White Burgundy, latitude has a strong flavor effect, and Burgundy is much higher latitude. You could actually make a more exact duplicate of White Burgundy in Oregon because its latitude is about the same as Burgundy. Mm. And there's very strong flavor. Even between like uh, Central Coast Chardonnays like this and North Coast Chardonnays, you can taste the latitude differences. There's more honey and melon as you go further. So are we latitude uh, equal to Bordeaux? If, I am if, not sure exactly. No, more like, uh, I think closer to, su- it would be closer to Southern France. Yeah, somewhere. no, I think... Um, We're 38 degrees. I, yeah, I think uh, Washington State is considered to be, that's how they used to sell themselves as being in line with Bordeaux. So wow, yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean Bordeaux is fairly fairly north. <clears throat> yes, it is, but Bordeaux is maritime, so it has right. nothing to do with Washington right. State, which is a continental climate. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Have you ever had Consgard uh, wines? Oh yeah, yeah. Even back when the when the judge was making them himself in the garage, I lived yeah. when I lived in Napa. I lived in the Stonecrest uh, neighborhood. I don't know if you know the neighborhoods mm-hmm. in Napa. And uh, Judge Consgard, John's father, lived at the top of the hill. And I remember when I first moved into that neighborhood, it was a very chummy little neighborhood, and he brought me a bottle of his Zinfandel. I remember thinking, oh, Christ, homemade wine. But it was, it was actually pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember looking at the label and thinking, oh, you know, homemade wine labels even worse than homemade wine. <laughs> and, of course, John I got to know quite well. Um you know, after I spent some time in Napa. And actually, uh, Alex, John's son, and my son are close, close buddies. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, they're really good friends. I'm, I bring it up because I, some of the California Chardonnays that I really like have this weird character where they seem to have richness but without weight. Mm. It's this, and I remember the, the one time, it's the Judge Chardonnay that I tried. I don't know what vintage it was, but I, I compared it to a marshmallow, where a marshmallow like <laughs> has all this space to it, yeah. but it but it doesn't weigh anything. And it was just, I don't, and I don't know what they were doing to make the wine that way, but it, I was just curious if maybe it was something like you're talking about, where they were... John's a, a really smart guy and he's a really dedicated winemaker so and it and of course 
you you have to farm Chardonnay correctly too. You can't see any direct sunlight. That's a mistake a lot of people make. Um, it's got the grapes have to stay green to make this style of wine green in color, hmm. especially for it to age. Like this this I my this one's like six years old now. It's it's entering its prime. At ten years from now, it'll still have the same color. I mean, it, this hmm. this will not darken because right. there's no there's none of the of the the carotene pigments that are in the skin of a golden a sun exposed chardonnay has got carotene pigments and that's what causes it to brown in the glass and for the flavor to decay. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why most California chardonnays see too much sun in my um, and it's a, right. it's a struggle because if you protect them from the sun, they're then very vulnerable to powdery mildew and other rocks. Right. So it's a real so it depends gotta, on the region you gotta, you're growing. You got to do your work in the vineyard too, and it's it's not it's it's not easy or obvious how to do that in many vineyards, coastal, oh. coastal vineyards. How did you do? What brought you to wine? I loved wine. I started drinking wine when I was about sixteen or seventeen. I would like buy uh, one dollar a bottle Riesling in New York City. I live in New Jersey. We'd go down to the shore and drink Riesling and smoke bad pot and you know it was just I just loved wine and then I discovered sparkling wine a friend of mine started working in a wine shop and uh and then I came out to California to do graduate school uh, studying plant science uh and discovered California wine um and was it, that at Davis yeah I went to I got a master's degree at Davis in uh plant pathology is what I eventually got my master's in plant diseases um and wine was just a, a hobby, and I spent like half my paycheck on it every week. I was a cork dork, you know. Yeah. And so I, when you say that, were you making wine at home? You mean? No, no, never. I made beer oh. at home. I didn't. Okay. I thought you had to be Italian to make wine, or your family had to do it. I mean, I had a very right. romantic view of it. Yeah. And then I, I went to a dinner party in Marin in the late seventies, and I was introduced to the two partners who founded Acacia, and we really hit it off actually through a mutual love of Riesling. We talked about Riesling and motorcycles all night. Mike Richmond, he's still my good friend. I'm actually going to see him this weekend. Um, and at the end of that evening, he said, they said, hey, we're starting a winery. Do you want to work for us? And I was like, oh, sure. The bullshit you hear at dinner parties, right? right. And I remember saying to him, well, what would I do? Because right. I didn't know how to make wine. I just knew how to drink it. And he said, and he made the motion of shoveling with his hands. He said, that's what you do. And I said, well, I know how to do that. You know, I was raised as a blue collar kid. You know, I knew how to do manual labor. And and sure enough, they raised. They said they had to raise a million dollars to start this winery, and they had. I think they had about half of it raised at the time I met them. And I thought, yeah, what are the chances of anybody giving these guys a million dollars to start a winery? But if it, we stayed in contact. We had a couple dinner parties um, over the months, and then uh, like a month before the '79 harvest, he called me up and he said, "We're going. We've got the money. Um, you know, show up, show up in Kenwood in a week, and you got a job." Okay, so. <clears throat> In Kenwood. In Kenwood. At the old St. Fran- Francis. At the old St. Francis, right. yeah. Um, and St. Francis was St. Francis Winery then? or was Yeah, like no, a, it was St. Francis. It was St. Yeah. Francis Winery. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah. Made, we made their wines off the estate, and we made Acacia's wine there. They didn't have a winemaker at that time, so part right. of the deal. Custom Crush was not a, much of a thing back then. Right. Yeah. And then it took us uh, another two years to actually build the Acacia Winery down in Carneros. So the 79 80 vintage were done at St. Francis, and then we... Uh, and so two questions. When you were at Davis, were you aware of the 
vetinology program? And did you know some of those people? And then who were those people? <laughs> the, well, that's really funny because when I first arrived there, the, the, the graduate school at that time was done in groups. So there's a plant, plant physiology group and it, there wasn't any department. And so I was housed in the pomology department, which is fruit science. And it's in the same, they shared the building with vit and enology. Um, and I would see these guys and I, I was dismissive of them because I thought they're just drinking wine all day. They're not scientists. I mean, I, what did I know? I was like, you know, 22 years old. Um, so, uh, and then, but then when I started making wine, I, I thought I've always been, had an academic bent. I love science. Um, and, I thought Davis is right there. It's a 45 minute drive from Napa. And I went and I went uh, to the food science department and I said, I want to get a master's in enology. And they're like, why? You already have a master's, you know? And they, I said, no, I want it in what I'm really interested in now. I said, but I, and they thought it was the dumbest thing they'd ever heard, but they let me sign up. They took my money and I start, I took all the coursework. I would go up there like one or two days a week, obviously not in the fall because I was too busy with the winemaking, but in the spring and winter quarters. And I got all the coursework finished. And just as I was starting my dissertation, I had my son. And then that was, you know, what happens when you have a kid. All of a sudden, I was really busy. <laughs> I thought I was busy before. Uh, so uh, I never actually got, I did I did all the coursework for the masters in, uh, and uh, it was great. Like Roger Bolton was in charge of like, the wine chemistry part of it then. And he was one of the most brilliant chemists I've ever, I mean, I'm a decent student and I, I would just walk out of his lectures dizzy. They were that intense. It was like some of the most intense scholastics I've ever done. It was great. Well, studying wine diseases too, that must be a really interesting aspect of it. Yeah. But you know, plant, plant pathology is a, uh, I, I was very interested. I, I only got into plant pathology because I, I was so interested in electron microscopy. Um, and so I ended up in that department just because of my fascination with one particular instrument with the electron Which is, wait, wait, microscope. Electron say that again and tell us what that is. Electron microscope is, the, is a microscope that can do incredibly high magnifications. Um, it's it's hard to even I can't I don't know how to describe it in layman's terms, but it's the most powerful visual tool. Yeah. For it's the like a microphone. telescope on, on the that you're looking at something in front right. of you. It's like a space telescope, but you're right. looking at it in Earth. Right. I mean, it's it, it's very difficult to prepare the samples. It's 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 hard, very hard to operate. It's, it was I was always fascinated with stuff like that. So that's how I ended up getting a degree in plant pathology. Mm. But actually the. Plant physiology, which I studied as an undergraduate, and, and that I went to graduate school, that's where I thought I would continue to specialize in, that actually has some overlap with grape growing. I mean, that's kind of the language plants speak. They're not going to speak English. So you have to learn the language they're speaking. And the plant physiology is kind of how you can understand what a plant's up to. Mm -hmm. So you open, you open acacia. Yeah. Doing exactly what? And, and well, a lot of shoveling in the first couple of years. Besides driving, shoveling. Driving tractors, doing yeah. all the lab work, yeah. tasting. Chardonnay um, and Pinot only? Uh, Chardonnay and Pinot only, yeah. And and the and the crazy thing is Chardonnay and Pinot only, and it was in Carneros. Yes. Because we certainly know Pinot was planted in all sorts of places it didn't belong. That's correct. Um, but yet you guys picked a good spot. 
Yeah, that was largely based on one vineyard, the St. Clair Vineyard, which has been Jim St. Clair died years ago and the vineyard got pulled out, so it doesn't exist anymore. But uh, uh, Mike Richmond, who was the founding winemaker at Acacia and taught me my craft um, initially, he had tasted a Pinot Noir that ZD had made from that vineyard, and he was like, wow, this like really tastes like Burgundy. This doesn't taste like California mm. Pinot. And then we bought from Winery Lake just because that has a brand name. And also, um, you know, we were very interested in single vineyard wines at that time, and I still am. I still think that Pinot Noir is uh, very appropriate as single climat or domain type uh, bottling. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, at that time, Rene would give you a discount if you would put his uh, vineyard on it. I mean, it's that times have wow. really changed now because he right? saw it as a way of promoting his vineyard. Yeah, he was, he was, a, he was a very clever guy. We Brilliant. became we became very good friends. Yeah. yeah, I used to be in and out of his house all the time, which was a wonderful house to hang out in. We just I, had that conversation this morning with I won't say who the the property was, but um, I was talking to someone that said, "Oh yeah, if you want to put that vineyard on your." label you got to pay for it and i was like wait a minute i didn't i didn't i thought they just tasted the wine and were like okay you're worthy and they're like no you actually have to pay <laughs> well i mean uh <laughs> you you know you can pay in how much you pay for the grapes like if you want to put your name on it yeah. it costs you times this this yeah. being this being Nacido, you have to send them a sample of the young wine and they decide whether you can put the vineyard name. Right. And do you have any idea who's tasting it or who's no, no comment? <laughs> not a not a top wine. Who tastes all, all yeah. the uh, Tokawan? Uh, oh, I want I mean I don't know, John, but I'm sure there is a vetting process if you're getting token fruit. Number one is your bank account, and then number two is is your bank account, and then number three is sorry, your bank account. Yeah. Okay, I made I, I made two vintages of Tokalon when yeah. Providence, really? when Providence was first starting, when Shalon mm-hmm. was uh, launching that. Andy and I go way back, and he gave me some, uh, actually some clone six off Tokalon, which I don't know if you know the Chardonnay, I mean Cabernet clones, but that's a real small, buried small clustered mm-hmm. selection. Oh my God. I, mean, I don't even like Cabernet. Really, I don't. I never drink it, but that was an amazing wine. And back, <laughs> even back then, I think it was like five or 6,000 a ton. It was, a, it was a lot of money. Yeah. And that was I think 20 now years it's, ago. Yeah, it's 20. 25 something like that at so this point. Pro- providence is was where it's located now was that the original location oh uh, no we made those first vintages at acacia at acacia yeah mm. and and that was a shalom yeah that was a shalom project was that the first like non-chardonnay no the uh oh, no, they, had can- they had canoe ridge they had carmenet they had canoe ridge up in washington state which uh one of my uh john abbott who was probably the best student i ever had or protege or whatever the correct you know he he worked under me for a while and he was just he was he was and is a great winemaker he was so much fun to work with wait so what's that label i've never heard of that label or had their wines before which one that you're talking about that they were making at acacia provenance provenance Provenance. so provenance is um just before you come into um just before you come into saint Helena on the left hand side Mm -hmm. It's kind of a nondescript winery building. It's you know for Napa. It's not anything mm-hmm. to draw um, draw your attention, other than being probably a well designed winery. Um, I think last I heard was uh, the gentleman from Duckhorn. Uh, I don't follow the business yeah, of wine very much. Yeah. 
Hmm. Uh, Cabernet. But it's still a label? Yeah. 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 But now I think it's owned by, um, I believe now it's owned by one of the large conglomerates. Okay. Yeah. So that's interesting that you don't follow the, um, follow that. It's good. That must be kind of freeing. Well, I never really did. I mean, I was always interested in the vineyard and the wines. Right. Um, and, and I did management reluctantly because if you do something well, they keep kicking you upstairs to manage other people doing it instead of letting you do it yourself. So I went through that process and then bounced out and started consulting. And, and that was a whole nother world because, you know, with most consulting clients, you offer advice, but you're not executing it. So there's a, a level of distance, you know, and, and one of the reasons I founded Campion in 2000 was so that I could have a hands-on project of my own and make exactly what I wanted because it's, you know, wines, once they're at a certain quality, it's just stylistic differences, right? Mm-hmm. And, it, and the only way you can do it is to control every aspect of it. Work mm-hmm. of the vineyard it lets you call all the vineyard management shots and make all the, do all the winemaking decisions yourself. And and it has to be small scale to be able to do that. I don't. I've worked in lots of wineries at, at lots of different size levels, and I'm I'm convinced that you, a single winemaker as opposed to a team, you can only make about let's say twenty to thirty thousand cases of wine if you want it of the highest quality. You get above that, somebody else is making some of the decisions. There's just too many barrels to taste. Yeah. I mean, I mean, even at twenty or thirty thousand, I mean, you've got a lot of barrels to taste. That's a, yeah, <laughs> a lot of wine. I, was, I, I thought he was going to say something like five thousand when he right. said twenty or thirty thousand. Right. No, but yeah. then, if you're making, if you're not doing twenty different varietals, yeah. Well, yeah. well, for instance, at, at Tolosa, we had it was a successful tasting room, so there was twenty three uh, labels, twenty three facings. Yeah. Um, but I had eight hundred acres of vineyard to cherry pick the top hundred out of, which made my job so much easier, uh, and a great staff. And so it just left me free to do the tasting. It was great. Yeah, I mean it's there's certainly as you get bigger and you have more people, you as a winemaker, you become farther and farther removed. Um, right. You know, I can remember going from a cellar manager to an assistant winemaker and realizing what that was as I walked around with a clipboard more than I did, you know, dragging st- hoses, dragging hoses <laughs> right. you know, and what was I actually happier doing, right? You know, you like the promotion and the moving up, but really you want to drag hoses and yeah. be on top of a tank and, yep. you know, smell things. and Topping barrels. Topping barrels, yeah. Filling barrels. I love all that stuff. The actual and, daily routine of making wine. Yeah, well, and, that that's, and that's where, I mean, uh, when I worked for the Benzigers, a lot of our cellar crew at the time was crew, it was the best of the best from the Glen Ellen days. Right. Right? Yeah. But even those guys, it was, there was still a processing part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't drink wine. They didn't, they didn't love wine. Right. And there's something lost with that. Whereas yeah. at Kenwood, the crew, the cellar crew, they were into wine and yep. they, they, every night when we got done, we went down and tasted wine together and there was discussions yep. and there was discussions, pulling samples and tasting over barrels. And yep. I, there's a loss of, there's a loss of connection if you're not yeah. following it all the way through. Yeah. 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 Well, that happens in restaurants a lot with, with cooks or chefs is, is that, um, you know, I've worked in a lot of restaurants where the people that are making the food have never gone out 
to a restaurant of the same quality that they are working at. That's too bad. And it's so they, I think they get a, a they get a one dimensional experience of like what they're doing. They think that they're just pumping out this food, but they've never seen the other side of it where people are actually appreciating right. what they're doing. Right. And so I, th- what a horrible feeling to just think that you're like running this production line, yeah. but then never getting to see the other side of it where people are, right. you know, they're actually appreciating all this hard work that you do by all these little steps that you're taking yep. with making each individual decision. And yep. I think that's the yeah. difference between a passion and a, and a job. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's just a job. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't that these, these guys cared. I mean, they cared so much. They would do anything for those families to get the work done, right? Yeah. But there was a loss of connection for the nuance. And wine is nuance, right? Yeah. If you yeah. lose, you, you have opportunities to save things and, and change things. And when it's lost in that, you just end up making... Following protocol. Right. So. Yeah, it's... I heard someone describe it once as it, it's a problem of scaling, that the very when you look at the world of wine, the very very few top wines in terms of by scale I mean a bottling batch a batch size. There's very few wines at the highest level where batch sizes are much above three or four thousand cases. There's, something happens, the wheels start coming off. I, I don't they don't lose quality, but it's as if they lose personality. You know, they lose focus or something, and mm. they just become more diffuse. It's like. If it like volume under under curves, like the finest wines are like this, whereas you know bigger wines are kind of like this. Right. There's 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 plenty of flavor there. There's plenty of quality, but it just isn't. They aren't fun to talk to. You know, right. they don't have any personality. Right. So, no. yeah, I think small batches are the way you have interesting wines. Can I t- can I just the beginning? Yeah, this wine is great, right? By the way, the, the, the Chardonnay is so good. Well, first of all, that's it's th- this is when I was consulting. I was acting as the winemaker for the Smith family wines. You know, mm-hmm. Parizo. Do you know those people down? No. In San- they're one of the original planters in the Santa Lucia Highlands, and I've known them forever, um, for generations, literally three of their generations. And they were making wine at that time. They've ceased making wine now. They're back to just grape growing, and and they let me make my own wine while I was making theirs. And so I got to, again, cherry pick. They've got like 10,000 acres of under grapes in Monterey, and they've got probably, ooh, I don't know, like 1,500 in Santa Lucia, a lot. And so um, it allowed me to cherry pick the vineyard sources, and, you know, it was just, that was heaven. And 18 also was a great vintage for Pinot and Chardonnay because um, – like the vintage we just had, um, like 23, um, there was no um, no heat spells whatsoever. Right. I mean, it, it was cool throughout. And I think it, with Pinot and Chardonnay, heat, especially the kind of those uh, August and September heat waves you can get, um, it just destroys the quality. Like the very best vintages are the cold vintages yeah. where there's no heat events. We, we talk often on this, when we talk about the 18s, we talk about how, like, 
you started picking things at the end of October, first of November, because right. you were running out of time. Exactly. And and but realistically, the weather was nice after it, and you yeah. could have let things hang even longer. Yeah, but I don't. I don't hanging for its own sake is that that's a tough well, right? But it, yeah. but again, going back to your point is like yeah. you weren't forced to no. pick anything. No, it was your decision when right. you were ready. Yeah, exactly. And and rarely have we had that. Well, with start with with early ripening varieties like Chardonnay and Pinot. Cold vintages are are not as good for later. You know, like I made some Syrah and Cab this year, and it was a struggle to get the kind of flavor we wanted. Just because the after about October tenth, the intensity of sunlight, the vines just aren't really yeah. metabolizing anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're just hanging to hang. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's just not enough force of photons or whatever hitting the leaves for them to yeah. really make flavor. Yeah. So. Hey, Larry, with your vast years of doing this, what are some things that you see going on? And we'll just stick to production because things that are going on in production that you're excited about or maybe things that you see that you're shaking your head going, that's been done before. Why are they trying to do this again? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, of course. Um, in terms of, let's start with positive because it's, it's it's all too easy to focus on negative stuff. Um, I think that the most interesting development to me personally has been the development of commercially available non-Saccharomyces yeast, starting with the um, Lafort's Alpha, and now there is Gied, which is a mixture of two different yeasts. The Alpha was a single yeast. That's transformed... Um, both red and white winemaking, as far as I'm concerned. In uh, what way? Because something goes on in that holding period pre-fermentation, before the fermentation begins, before the Saccharomyces, the true wine yeast, begin fermenting. And under most circumstances, that can be anywhere from 3 to 10 days or maybe even 14 days before uh, a fermentation takes off on ambient yeasts. Which, you know, there's there's Saccharomyces in this room with us. Um, th- Probably not many, but there's some. Um, and before the development of these selected um, non-Saccharomyces yeast, anything could happen during that period. And things did happen that were spoilage starts, basically. But also, if spoilage doesn't start, and especially with Chardonnay, a work I did with uh, Jeff Myers at J. Lore when I was working with them, we found that if you have the same wine and you had, and they did experiments with like 50 barrel batches, really full scale experiments, the most amazing experimental work I've ever seen in Chardonnay. And if you take the same batch and you split it and you inoculate half that batch immediately, let's say with Montrachet, which I think is the best Chardonnay yeast for barrel fermentation. Um, and then the other one, you wait 10 days and then you inoculate it. The one where you had that 10 days of it just sitting as juice is far, far better than the one that you inoculate immediately. Something is going on in the juice that's positive. Nobody knows what it is, and it makes for a lot more complexity. And it's the whole thing about like uninoculated Chardonnays, which has been going on for a long, long time, makes better wine. But now with these selected non-Saccharomyces, you can put a holding yeast in there, and you can get almost as long a period as you want where it doesn't spoil because these yeasts are ticking along at a, a holding tiny, yeast. tiny level. 
it's they call it bioprotection, but it's basically you're just it's a little placeholder yeast that you're putting in there. Right. Um, and they don't eat up the nutrients. They don't really consume much sugar. Like barely, barely ferment. Uh-huh. And then you, at whenever you want, at five days or ten days or whatever, you put in your whatever yeast you're going to use. Or you can also just let it go on its own. I mean, I like doing that too. Uh, probably. Twenty percent of these wines, nothing went into the barrel except the juice, and just, right. just go on its own. There's some risk there, especially of sticking. You know, right. I don't think I'd go one hundred percent that way. I'm too conservative to do that. But that, and in reds, you don't have to chill the must anymore to cold soak. What used right. to be called cold soak, you just put these yeast in, and they hold it. Right. And not only that, but you get a much more as you get, during that soaking period, you get a much more accurate analysis of your must. It used to be. Well, that's I that's mean, a huge technical <laughs> advantage. I, I, I have a lot of Zinfandel this year that <clears throat> it soaked up and soaked up, and oh, yeah. you know, and and I I think it's still. <laughs> I mean, it's well off skins. I know. But I feel it's like it's Zin's still soaking up. Um, but but yeah, I mean, th- that's interesting. I I'm not a technical winemaker. I'm more of a seat of the pants. But holding yeast, um, it's really interesting um, because it's because there is bad natural yeast out there oh yeah um, and bacteria too and bacteria and um you know i would probably say for myself i've been lucky um a whole bunch of times and um your luck runs out eventually like i've made enough wines that i've had every possible failure too and i regret all of them I, i've made wines that i've i've lost and i still feel bad about it and that was like more than 20 years ago um and the nice thing too you can use less so too because you don't you can put these things in instead of SO2. You can use virtually zero SO2 at the destemming process. I mean, you eventually want to put some SO2 in there, I believe, but uh, it it definitely allows you to use a lot less SO2. So, um, yeah, and the fact that the idea of cold soaking without um, burning all the electricity, burning up. all the electricity, <laughs> right. and and just right. earlier yeah. when we were here with Scott, there was a pretty good discussion because. You know, Sam's family, they do this wine, Audetet, which was a joint venture with Philippe Combi. Mm-hmm. And Philippe likes a long, cold soak um, in the initial. And Scott was talking about, you know, cold soaking, you know, without the presence of alcohol, what you get out of it. Oh, that's a technique um, I agree is a really good technique. Yeah. Especially for Pinot. Right. And that's what he tried to do. I remember when Adam Lee was here um he brought some of his wine club members one day and we, I was talking about the Audetet wines and the, the extended um, soaking. And he said, Oh yeah. When Philippe first approached me, he was talking about like 45 days or something. And he said, I thought he was fucking insane. <laughs> I had a, I had a valve on a jacket stick open, uh, uh, in when was that? It was 2003. It was with a fire peak vineyard, uh, Edna Valley Pinot Noir and nobody, Caught it. Caught it. And I was working out of Napa still at that time. So I was only, you know, it was in the cold soak period. I was like, well, when it starts fermenting, I'll come down and see what's going on. <laughs> so I was like all over the place back then. I won't do that anymore. I like stay in one place during harvest now. But during that period, I was like making wine all up and down the state. It was a mess. Um, but anyways, this thing stuck open. And so it ended up and it, to warm it back up after it got down to like 32 degrees because it was like full on for like days and days before anybody caught it and it so it was ended up being like a 21 day cold soak before it started fermenting and that was an amazing wine 
Yeah. I wouldn't repeat it, right. but it really was good. Right. <laughs> Plus, no winery would let you, in their right mind, would let you burn that much electricity right. for well, so and long. What's, what's the, you know, what's the downside of having the skin soak that long? Isn't it that you're kind of worried about tannin? Right, because you've you're not got depends on the grape variety, and also in an aqueous solution without alcohol, you're not going to extract very much tannin. And in huh. Pinot, in particular, all the tannins in the seeds, there's none in the skin. Okay. So until you get at the seed and break down that layer around it, which usually takes alcohol to do that, in my experience, because huh. that's the whole point is getting the extraction before alcohol is present. Right, that yeah. was Philippe's whole thing is that he wanted the extraction before alcohol. But I think like letting this Chardonnay juice sit before it starts fermenting, there's some kind of passive chemical stuff going on when juice just sits. And I don't know what it is, but it makes for more flavorful wine. So it's not just about extract and when and how you extract. Right. It's about when that juice is just sitting there as juice. There's some passive chemical things going on that make for better flavors. And and it's interesting because you have to, if you if you blindly put juice into barrels and you say, you know, it'll start on its own. Um, you have to get used to that. Like you go and you smell your barrels every day or a couple times a day and you have to get used to that pungentness and go, oh, it's not really good. I hope it's better <laughs> tomorrow. And you go back tomorrow and all of a sudden you go, I got CO2. I'm good. Right. And yeah. you get this false sense of security. Um, yeah. But something was happening in between there. Yeah. So, but everyone talks that you know, the, the over the last ten years, it's all been oh, wild yeast. We're not inoculating, um, but then you people that generally run more financially backed consumer <laughs> wineries will say they'll 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 inoculate because they want tried and true. We know it's going to start at this time. We know it's going to be finished at this time. There's no um, worry involved. I. Th- I'm very comfortable uninoculated whites, and I think especially with the aromatic whites. Like when I was at Claiborne and Churchill recently, uh, last four or five years, um, I recently left there. They make a lot of Gewurztraminer and Riesling, mm-hmm. and oh my God, I don't wouldn't use any uh, uh, selected yeast on that. I'd let mm-hmm. them all go uh, wild because it makes such a profound difference. In in Chardonnay, the difference is there, but it's it's more subtle. But in in the more aromatic the wine, the more important role yeast plays. And un, uninoculated, and it's Saccharomyces, some form of Saccharomyces is doing that ferment. So the whole idea of wild versus uh, selected, it's a it, it's specific to the wine. Like on reds, I always add a selected yeast. It's mm-hmm. just far too much risk to. As far as I'm concerned, for me to have and when you say risk, you mean spoilage, lack of production of sufficient alcohol, absolute spoilage, um, all kinds of problems. I, you know, off flavors, formation of chemicals that'll give you headaches. Um, I mean, I 100% I use selected bacteria, like all those biogenic amines that cause mostly allergic reactions in wine are caused by uninoculated ml uh, unselected ml you're you're just our listeners minds are just being blown down everybody's trying to figure out where the headaches come from it's absolutely it's the biogenic amines it's like histamine anyone will get an allergic reaction from it and the research indicates that those are produced almost exclusively by bacteria 
and the selected bacteria don't produce any of them. And that's why if you want to make healthful wines, you should be inoculating heavily with selected bacteria and not letting it go wild. And when you say bacteria, you mean? ML bacteria. ML bacteria, yeah. strictly. Yeah. 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 And also they've been selected now so they don't produce any diacetyl. Diacetyl is nasty. I mean, that'll give you a headache too. Well, and that's also something that I think people don't understand. And that's a generational thing. Like everybody hears about like big, fat, buttery Chardonnays. And they don't realize that the ML of the time, that's exactly what it was supposed to do was right. produce diacetyl. <laughs> right. Um, and now it is. It's different. Yeah. Diacetyl is not – if you – if you added diacetyl to your wine, you would think it ruined it, and it pretty much would ruin it. I mean, and it's a highly – it accelerates oxidation and aging. It's really not something you want yeah. at all. And the only common consumer response to that is it's sulfites. Yeah. That's what causes the headache. No, it doesn't, actually. Yeah, it's not. That's There's a lot of misinformation. Um, I mean, you know, that I people have a limited appetite for – uh, scientific and technical information, but there's a lot of good information and a lot of good work that's been done in wine science, beginning with you know Louis Pasteur. So, and it's been a subject of scientific investigation as a as a comestible product longer and more intensively than anything else. Was Pasteur a winemaker? Uh, no, he was a scientist. I know he's, that, he's but a, I thought he might... He might have described himself... <laughs> a, I don't know. He, in modern parlance, he'd probably be called a bacteriologist or a microbiologist or something. So that's that's a great one. I, I, I had no idea where you were going with that, but I uh, that, that's a great positive thing going on in the business. Thank you for yeah. sharing that. Yeah, and there's... I You know, techniques keep being improved i mean you know the the development of cross flow filtration for wine was well, i think one of the best things ever those these diam corks even though they've been around 20 years now are one of the best technical improvements of my lifetime as a winemaker i would have killed for a closure like that one you know i had to use natural corks which suck i mean they're just the worst you know, besides contaminating wine with flavor, they're unpredictable in their oxygen transfer. So any given bottle could have like 10 times more oxygen transferring through the cork. Where you get, you know, the best kind of technical closures and they all transfer exactly the same amount of oxygen. It's great. Hmm. And and they're a little cheaper than natural corks too. Yeah. So. It, it's amazing. You know, you, you hear these arguments or discussions or philosophies and yeah. um, it, it's, it's pretty compelling, right? Like, you know, we've had cork people on and, you know, well, I work for a cork person <laughs> <laughs> who is adamant um, that natural cork is the way to go. And, and, but, you know, traditional um, thinking and, you know, they've, they've gotten the, the numbers down, you know, around 1%, whereas it used to be, sure, sure. you know, 8 to 10% or whatever it was. But uh, I've had batches in my career that were closer to 20. I mean, there's, there's yeah. some really bad. Anyone who worked with natural cork has had, but even if that problem aside, the the difference in permeability from cork to cork, there's no way around that. Just because the fact that it's a natural product and it's yep. unreliable. So, or yeah. It's yeah. a different part of the tree. Each each one right. is. Right, yeah, exactly. You know, it, it's like Peter Moldar when he talks about Hungarian oak being different biologically than French oak. And it's, it's got different flavors for sure. Yeah. There's, no, there's no doubt about that. Really it's just different. a tighter molecular structure, I believe. It smells a lot like clove to me. 
Hungarian oak versus French. That's what I get when I've played with it. You're using mostly French? Yeah, I like French oak. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, th- and three, three years stave aged. Really important. Okay, I was going to say, how deep do you go? Are you looking for a particular forest and it's a certain... Medium to tight grain. I think grain selection is um, probably... you. I'm not crazy for one forest or the other, but I think the the producer, the cooper, is very, very important and yeah. how, how they age and how they make the barrels. Where does that all come from in France? Uh, the forests are all over central France mostly. Um, they stretch from just south of Paris down through the center of France. France has the highest percentage forested acre of any country in the world, I think. And, and the coopers have gone away from calling forest selected it's really gone More to by grain by type, grain type yeah. and um you know tighter grained um less impactful yeah um you know the the cognac makers and the distilled spirits people like the very open grain mm-hmm. make you know big impact and if you were if you had a big wine that you wanted to mature more quickly you might select some open grain right. oak get a little more oxygen into yeah. it but it'd be more effective to just rack it a couple extra times. Right. This is such a rabbit hole. <laughs> I mean, you just keep oh, on going. You have no idea. When it comes to barrels, you can <laughs> you can have five shows on barrels and have completely different opinions from every single person involved yeah. as far as... And you, it, I've worked at wineries with budgets and size enough to be able to take test a lot of barrels and yeah. you and you and it's you you find what you like and you find what works with the given wine right. but you have to you have to it has to be at least probably a five or six barrel lot because as you taste as you know as winemakers you taste barrel to barrel from the same cooper to the same barrel there there's differences yeah you know it's a natural I, I, product yeah i was yeah. just gonna say the handcrafted fact that product what you, yeah. what you said about you know 50 bar a 50 barrel lot i mean that that's an awesome um, study if you can do that. That's yeah. a comparison. And very few wineries can, can do that, or yeah. have the or have the wherewithal to even run. Yeah. The well, and or, it takes or, so or long. someone to take care of, uh, yeah. make sure it it doesn't get ruined, right? <laughs> just to it's yeah. so many times it's like oh, I just stick them together, and you go, but oh, was I was monitoring right. those? <laughs> you know? no. no, yeah, that it has to. It has to start from the top. <laughs> you know, the winemaker has to be very interested in that. But, but yes, there's a huge difference. Not a huge difference. There's differences from barrel to barrel, without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, it's a matter of, they used to joke about you never wanted a Cadillac that was finished on a Friday. <laughs> or, or maybe it was a Monday, you know? I mean, the same thing. Could you imagine a guy standing over a fire toasting a barrel and he's hung over from, <laughs> you know, too much right. mescal the night right. before? <laughs> that happens to be the barrel. And that happens you to get. be your barrel, yeah. right? We had a little mezcal tasting last night after dinner. <laughs> Wait, at home or at my son's place in Napa? Yeah. yeah. Wait, so tell me the results. What? Uh... Oh, it wasn't anything formal. He just opened yeah. like five different. He had five different bottles going, and we just tasted them and picked the ones we liked. And did you have a favorite? It's on my phone. I could probably. I don't, I don't know mezcal. It's not a. It's not something I studied. So. Oh yeah, I no, we've we've done a little studying around here. Um. So so you're up for you're you're a cyclist. Yeah. Oh and, yeah. And, Absolutely. and you're up okay. for um for a race. Yeah, it's an outlaw race. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a it's not a you're not pinning a number on. Real races you pin numbers on and you have to pay. Right. Um and how long have you been a rider? I started this was my favorite. Um I started commuting to college well, I've rode my whole life, but I started taking bicycling seriously. I was commuting to 
college. I put okay. myself through college, so I didn't have two nickels to rub together. Yeah. And a bike was the cheapest way to get to. there. And then a couple of guys that were in the art department with me um, had racing bikes. This was in like late 60s. And one of them was a Chinelli, and the other was a Paramount. And they were so beautiful. And aesthetically, I wanted it because it was such a beautiful machine. Right. So I saved and saved and saved. And eventually I, I bought a high-end Raleigh road bike. Okay. I went to Davis for graduate school. It was a big bike town. Big bike started town. getting into long-distance cycling. Um, started doing like ultra-endurance type events. And then uh, in my mid-30s, discovered road racing. Started road racing. And then mountain bike racing with my son. My son's a cyclocross racer. That's what he really likes these Wait, days. Wait, what is that? It's when you basically race on the dirt on a road bike. It's really cool. And you have to leap up stairs and shit. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. I've seen that. Okay. Yeah. And then I did some mountain bike racing. I've recently been doing some track racing. Wow. Yeah, I still road race, and I race on the track and some gravel racing. And and you're down the Central Coast. In I mean, San like Luis Obispo. Gravel, race, or gravel riding mecca down there. It's there's, fantastic. You only have to go about two blocks off a road, and you're on dirt. I know. There's especially like just north of me and like around uh, Santa Margarita and Pozo. Yeah. Endless dirt roads. It's yeah. fantastic. It's really, I, I spend most of my time on a gravel bike these days because it's like road riding, but no cars. Right. You know? And what do you ride? I've got a custom Inglis. Okay. It was actually a birthday present for my son for my 68th birthday. Oh. One of the nicest presents I've I ever got. I was going to say, you, you taught your son well. <laughs> well, I bought him a lot of bikes over the years, too. Because when I told him it was too generous, he was like, shut up, Dad. How many bikes did you buy me over the years? That's awesome. So, yeah, it was great. Yeah, I love cycling. I, I actually, I, I've, uh, I'm a good athlete in that I devote a lot of time to it and I'm stubborn and I understand training, but I'm not genetically gifted. So, you know, when I was a younger athlete, my goal was always, if I could get into the top 10, I was doing really, really well. But now as I've gotten older and there's fewer and fewer people, it's age category racing. Right, right. Now I'm on the podium all the time because all my competition has died or right, right. injured out. And I recently, I started racing in NorCal in 1985 and I always wanted a district championship. And this year I finally got a district, district championship, a state championship essentially. Um, actually two, one for the 2000 meter pursuit on the track and the road time trial. I, I, I won the gold medal this year after 40 years of trying. Wow, <laughs> congrats. Of trying. And, and that whole market started with Schwinn <laughs> way back when in the United States. Yeah. Huh. Yep. I remember having a Motobacan or a Jatane just because those are so cool. I've got, an old, I've got an old Jatane track bike still that was probably built in like 1959 or something. It's really cool. Yeah. I, I, I was a um, cross country runner and I was, again, not not an at, I mean, not a, you know, dis, I didn't have the body for right. for being the cross country runner, but I could do it because I had great endurance. Right. And, and I did okay. And so obviously running went away, but one thing I've always been able to do is ride. And I did my first century like in high school. And yeah. um, it's something that I can continue to do. Um, and I've come accustomed to be sometimes being one of the last guys in yeah. um, because it's not about that. It's about the challenge right. and just finishing it yourself. Yeah. Yeah, like this, this group I'll ride with tomorrow, they'll most of them will be half my age, and I'll I'll be one of the slowest guys out there, but I'll be able to finish and I'll have a lot of fun. Yeah, and well, these, and you're supporting a charity also. 
Uh, yeah, I'm doing my. I do a, um, chef, a right, chef called, cycle called Chef Cycle. Oh, great! Um, and so uh, that's coming up. But that's yeah, um, but the, the the writing allows me to eat cheese and drink beer. <laughs> that's and that's that's why I, that's why I get on the bike a lot too because <laughs> then I don't have to hold back at the table. Right. Right. <laughs> awesome. Um, right, did we talk about this? We didn't. We didn't talk about the Biancito much. Yeah. Um, this is from Block. L. Biennecito is a big vineyard. Um, Block L is an old, it's Robert Young selection, so it's an old California selection. This is on a, a split trellis, um, which is quite unusual. Um, but w- actually, I, I kind of like split trellises. I, I planted a couple split trellis vineyards when I was at Acacia. Will you explain that just for people that don't work out in the vineyard? <laughs> yeah. Um, most are single trellis. That is, you have a posts and wires and the shoots grow up from the vine straight into a single panel of leaves mm-hmm. and, a, and a single line of fruit. And a split trellis, you split the vine and in each vine is two panels. So I've it effectively doubles the density of vine right. uh, canopy, uh, fruit zone per acre. Yeah. So you can take a less crop per shoot. Um, it turns out that in the physiology of the vine, the vine doesn't transfer between shoots very much. The the leaves that are on the shoot that the cluster is on, that's what they get. There's very little transferring between shoots. So with, with a split trellis, you can have one cluster per shoot instead of the normal two to three. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's a really it's very expensive to put in. It's very it's very hand. The more panels of fruit and leaves you have to manage, the more labor. Um, and it's also the infrastructure of of all those posts and wires is much more expensive. Mm-hmm. So, but this particular block is a split trellis, and it, because it's not vertically trapped, it's draped, and so all this fruit is shade grown, which is why I particularly mm-hmm. like this block. It, yeah. see, it sees just the most dappled sunlight, and it's drapes open so the the air circulation gets in there. It stays pretty clean most of the time in terms of you know disease. Um, and this was stainless fermented. The, uh, there were eight barrels and uh, only one new oak barrel and one used oak barrel, and all the rest were stainless barrels. Um, mm, about a quarter of it uninoculated. The new oak, I always use Montrachet. I think nothing works better with a new oak barrel than Montrachet yeast. It's a fan- it was, the f- I think, if I'm correct, it's the first selected yeast. The Pasteur Institute in Paris selected that yeast. It's UC Davis 522 is its name in this country. But and most it, winemakers call it Montrachet or M. It has a very distinctive, it's very distinctive aromatically and texturally. Correct? It's also, it has high nutrient demands. And if you don't, if your must or your juice is not naturally rich in nutrients, it's going to, uh, stink, it's going to have problems. So you got to really watch your nutrient level when you're using that yeast. But if you can tune your nutrient level, it makes fantastic wine. This is really elegant. Yeah. I, I yeah. beautiful. Very low alcohol, both of these. This even yeah. lower. I think this is like, it's like maybe 12 and a half or yeah. 12, six, something yeah. like yeah. that. Yeah. It's really beautiful. And so who you're continuing to make wine, obviously. I just sold this project. This was my own little pet project. Um, I'd like, Seventy, hundred thousand dollars worth of inventory. It generated a little twenty or thirty grand in income a year. Just mm-hmm. Chardonnay, um, just Pinot Noir. Usually, this, okay. these were, uh, there were no Chardonnays made in between this, but it was Pinot made every year. Oh. Um, 
but I again, I think I I drink mostly Pinot, but Chardonnay fascinates me. Um, so it's Chardonnay is fun to talk about. It's more intellectual than Pinot. And so when you say you sold this, who's so so this was a brand that you created, but then yep. you sold it to someone else who's continuing to make the wines under this label. I'm continuing as the winemaker, but he's the owner now. Gotcha. So now you just spend your time yeah. making the wine. I don't, and don't have to, have, don't don't worry have to about any of the sell other it bullshit. anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure you keep on top of every little thing. Well, the vineyard. Well, the new owner doesn't know how to make wine. He just he just loves wine. And he's got some money, and that's okay. very common in the business. Um, yeah. Who's I'm doing just, vineyard management? These are uh, Biennacito has a. They manage their own vines, but you you get to tell them what you want. I mean, that's the best vineyards will allow you basically to make the management calls. Yeah. We'll Biennacito has an incredible vineyard management team. I think Chris Chris is still. I don't know if he's still there. I don't know if Chris yes, is still. he's still there. Okay, yeah, absolutely. But yeah. yeah, I mean, one of the one of the premier vineyards in California. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. I think you can say that very safely. And also, the whole and, and the size of it. And also, the, the whole Santa Maria Valley is fantastic Chardonnay appellation. Yeah. I think one of the very best in California. Yeah. yeah. Can I talk about my book a little bit? Of yes. course. Yeah, okay. That was the whole point. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we, no, no. we just get distracted okay. with the other stuff. Yeah. No, I do too. Um, so, anyways, I, I wrote this book. After I left Tolosa in 15, I had a, a year's severance, and my wife had been bugging me to write a book, and so I started I started writing it. And I, every morning, I spent four hours writing, and in about six months, it was done. And I wanted to write it in three sections, uh, uh, tasting, wine flavor and tasting, then wine growing, and then wine making. Um, and uh, I finished it, and a good friend of mine who uh, works as an editor asked her to read it um and i sent her a chapter i don't remember i sent her part of it and and then she was visiting me a couple weeks later and and she just laughed at me she said larry the the only reader for this book is you um (laughs) because i love really dense language and complex grammar and so i'd written this like really really dense book Mm -hmm. and she's and and i said but i love this kind of prose and she says nobody else does right um and, and she, she said, uh, you don't have to dumb it down, but you have to simplify it. And I said, well, I don't know what you mean. She, she said, well, we'll go. She, we went back to my desk and the preface, which is the shortest part, it's about 4,000 words. She said, we'll just go through this and I'll go through it with you sentence by sentence and tell you what right. you have to change to make this readable to an ordinary human. And uh, she went over it with me and she said, now rewrite this and send it to me and we'll see if you've, you know, looked listening to what I'm telling you about it. So I rewrote it. It took me, I don't know, 10 or 12 hours just to rewrite those, that four or five pages. It was really arduous. It had to be completely changed. And I sent it to her and she said, perfect. This is what, now you have to do the whole, you have to read that right, the whole rest of the book like this. Um, and I said, I said to her, but I don't even like the way it reads anymore. I don't recognize my voice in it yeah. and I hate it now. And she said, all authors tell me that. She said, that's, she said, that's very common. She said, now just get to work if you want to. And so by that time I was working again, the severance had used up that money. It was time to get back to work. So I didn't have four hours every morning to work on it. So it took me over the course of about four or five years, I went through several drafts of it. And I, and about two years ago, I, 
uh, hired the guy, a good gal who's worked on some websites for me and a professional copy editor. I spent about another $1,000 and I put together a publisher's pack, which was a perfectly copy edited chapter and blah, blah, you know, all this stuff that you have to do for publishers. Send it out. A couple of publishers, it got bounced around a little bit. Two or three publishers were interested in it. I settled on one and then they said, okay, here's now what you have to do. And I realized... I'm going to have to go out and sell it just like I would used to have to sell wine, yeah. which I hate. And I was just like, I'm not doing that. I like, I had a lot of fun writing this. It's done. It's accomplished. It's in finished form. And I just like shelved it. That was about a year and a half ago. And, uh, but it was bugging me that I'd put so much work into it. I mean, literally like years of work. And it was in some sense, I felt like my legacy, like everything I've learned in four decades of winemaking is right. in that book. Um, and then I was reading all these essays on Substack, and I'd done a, a little publishing in magazines, and I'd published some stuff in Medium. I don't know if you guys follow that world of, you know, kind of online publishing, but I'd published some essays there on various subjects. And then I, more and more, I kept being drawn to Substack. So a lot of the writers that I respect, like George Saunders, you guys, you know who he is, Lincoln and the Bardo, fantastic book, wonderful writer. He started publishing on Substack, and I thought, I can just like post this stuff on Substack and it, it can exist and it'll find what readers it finds. So, yeah. so about, uh, I was going to do it in December and uh, my wife said, no, everybody's busy in December. She said, started in January. So I like got it all set up and first week in January started putting it out there. So, so for those of you out there, um, tell them it's called liquid geography, right? Yeah. Um, tell them how they can find it. I signed up for the mailing list. Right. Um, uh, haven't really kind of gotten into. I've got received a couple things, but please tell everybody. Yeah, the way Substack works is um, you can. I've got it set up so you can sign up free because I wanted it open source. You can also pay me, which I would appreciate. They have both a paid and unpaid subscriptions. Um, right now, um, it's one hundred percent free. If you want, what's what's curious is about. 10 or 15% of the people are, are paying, you know, even though they don't have to, which is right. nice. Um, but you just, you just go to Substack and, and search it. And um, Substack will also allow you to read a few things for a little while for free that are normally paid to try and induce you. But um, you can just sign up as a free subscriber to it or as a paid subscriber. So you just go, just get on your computer and type in Substack Liquid Geography and you'll end up there. And who do you envision reading this? Um, you or know, who do you want or hope that is reading it? You know what? I think anyone, it's aimed at wine professionals. Yeah. It would be probably, it's not a textbook. Right. And it's, it's not a manual either. It's, they're not recipes, but there's a huge amount of practical information in yeah. it. So someone early in their career... Or a student of wine, um, I think like Psalms and wine writers and anyone deep, studying for their oh yeah studying for their MW or anything like yeah that. It, it basically even though it's aimed at professionals I think anyone who's passionately interested in wine it's written in plain English jargon free yeah. you don't need a degree in any kind of science to understand that it. it's it's uh, there's literally no technical. Language now, now, in it whatsoever. After you've done, you didn't dumb it down. You made it easier to read. <laughs> well, I, I always it was always in jargon-free play, uh, 
it was not written as a scientific book um, because there's plenty of wine science books out there. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to, I wanted to write a book on the craft of wine. So that's what it is. Excuse me. So if it, now with the sort of the evolution of the, the industry where you don't have to own a big castle with a long driveway with vineyards and people can make wine at crush pad facilities and don't necessarily have to have gone to Fresno or Davis. So that's what I was kind of thinking more people like that, that are have an interest in making wine, but don't have an interest in going to school. Garageist. Right. Where that might have valuable information in there where they, Oh, um, for sure. Like, I mean, again, Someone that's on the in the early stages of their investigation of wine, especially if they're interested in growing it or making it, mm-hmm. I think they would find this book very interesting. Yeah. Um, there's a there's real deep dives on every aspect of winemaking, but in, in no way could you just pick this up solo and do it. You would still need. Other resources. Right. I mean, winemaking is like cook too. Book winemaking is like cooking. You have to teach yourself ultimately. I yeah. mean, that's how the only way you learn to make wine is making wine. Yeah. So, but it's fun to read about it too. I mean, I love reading, so yeah. it's fun. It was fun for me to write about it. Because I mean, how many harvests have you done? Uh, Forty-four in California. A uh, couple in Argentina and one in New Zealand. So I, mean, I mean, he's in the 50. he's in the top three, right? We had, um, I think, Ramy was Ramy Arrowwood, Ren Harris. Uh, uh, Ren Ren was Ren up sixty five. Yeah. No, no. Well, the, I, Ren Ren. I mean, no no, no shade talking. on Ren. Ren wasn't in the cellar. Like right. Ren no, was in the hand, business. He's not a hands-on one. Right. Yeah. yeah. No. I mean, and, and this is this, that's a little different. This is different. You know. Right. And Richard yeah. from um, from yeah. Arrowwood. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, Charlie Tolbrook. You know. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. S- Steve Kistler's had a, a bazillion. Sure. Just, we're we're only talking about bazillion. people we've had on the show. Though. Okay. Right. And right. also, Steve was the first guy in California to use this technique of aging. Uh, through into the next year. Right. He was doing that before anybody was. That's fascinating. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that, that he does and that with all those wines? I'm pretty sure he does. I mean, I haven't, he's, we used to be in the same technical group together years ago, but I haven't, I haven't seen him in a long time. So I don't know what he's up to these days. But I remember when he was first describing that technique to me, and I was thinking, hmm. Yeah. I did, you know, I, it was before I. Did you kind of roll that. your eyes about it? Of course. Like whenever you hear anything <laughs> new, that's what you, that's what you always do. I have to tell you a funny story about this vintage. So I'm, there's a new owner. I'm working for this guy now. I'm in this essence is consulting winemaker, not an employee. Um, and we're making, you know, we decided what we were making. We're making Pinot Noir. We're making Chardonnay. We got some Grenache and Syrah from down at San Inez because uh, he wants to broaden the portfolio of wines he's making. And the harvest is rolling along. Pinot's in. Chardonnay's coming in. He says, I've got some Mourvedre. It's going to come in in a couple of days. And I was like, what? I was like, what do you mean it's going to come in for a couple of days? What do you mean Morvedra? And I was like, I haven't even seen the vineyard, right? And I'm like, I'm like, what? What have I got myself into? And this one's contract <laughs> fell and through. Then, 
And yeah. then and then he tells me it's six thousand a ton. And I'm like, what? Oh God! And and, and and it's like, first of all, like I don't drink Morvedra. I don't think very highly of it as a varietal. And I'm thinking, oh God, the things you do for money. And th- th- so then I say, let's let's go look at the vines, okay? You know, b- before you sign a contract or before this fruit comes in, I need to see the vines. And so it's a Ducey vineyard. It's called Paper Street. It's up on a hilltop in the west side of Paso, up in the hills. And it's a cool-looking vineyard, and Matt Ducey, who shows it to us, I figure out that I know him, and we have mutual friends. It turns into, like, a really nice afternoon. We go and taste the wine that they make it. They make it from that same block at their own winery and make it as a single varietal, which is unusual for Movedra. I taste it. It's delicious. I'm like, hmm, okay. So maybe maybe this isn't such a bad thing. But I've never made a Movedra in my life. I go to all the books in my library because i got, like, hundreds of wine books at home and I start reading everything I can do in like the world's fastest study on Mervedra. I call a couple people I know. They're all like, Mervedra, are you kidding? And everybody's like, give me a hard time. I, mean, I, got, I is- got two days. You got to help me out here. Listen, and I think we know that all of his friends are all Pinot and Chard guys. Yeah, many of them, but I've got, I've got a wider group of winemaking friends than that. Anyways, long story short, it ends up making like Probably one of the very best wines I've ever made in my <laughs> career. It is just mind-blowingly delicious. It's like insanely aromatic. You know, not that usual dog meat, you know, that Mouvedre can do. Instead, it's like perfumed and floral and intensely fruity. And it's black as ink, but it's yeah. not tannic. It's yeah. just, and it's an amazing wine. It was just a little lesson and just bite your tongue, do your job. You don't know what's going to happen <laughs> until you make the wine you know and is that wine available now oh, i want to try it won't even be bottled for probably another 18 months and yeah. probably, it'll be available in about three years you can come down to the wine yeah. and taste it if you want great <laughs> it's in a giant um 450 liter punch and because this has got to be right by i mean we went down to vicky carroll's house right so she's sort of in this area well vicky's in um uh, vicky's south uh closer to uh, San Luis Obispo. Okay. Um, Ducey's just south of, it's right off of 46, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So right yeah. outside, just south, just of, south Paso. of Paso. In the hills. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. 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 Huh. yeah. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Well, um, I, I assume you're not a social media guy. A little bit. My wife's really good at it. Okay. So do you want to give a shout out for our listeners? Might want to find you on social media. And then one more time um, for the website. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the book liquid geography on Substack, yep. yeah absolutely and i'm actually on instagram as a voluptuary okay. so uh, but that's mostly like pictures of bicycles and things like that that's there's fine. not much wine stuff on my instagram we'll we'll, 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 <laughs> we'll add it to the notes yeah. and then and then shout out the the wines that you want to shout out that you might be working on yeah the campion wines uh I'm continuing to work on, um, and I work on other miscellaneous projects too, but this is the only branded project I'm working right now. Yeah. 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 And we'll put it in the show notes and, um, hopefully, uh, some of our listeners will, uh, say hi and check out the book and well, that would be great. That'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, thanks Larry. Oh, thank you. Much appreciated. Yeah, the wines are great. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Glad you guys I enjoyed really, them. truly enjoyed, yeah. especially doing the A/B test. It was just, <laughs> well, I mean, I like that. 
Yeah. I, 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 that's really the only way I can appreciate one versus the other, yeah. and I appreciated them both. Well, Literally. that's what our brains are good at, actually, is that compare and contrast. It's yeah. funny. We we were doing that here in the tasting room where we had the, the whole Audutet thing was a, was a study in terroir, so it was what would happen if you took the same grape, same clonal selection, same grower, same winemaker, same exact process, but from two different vineyards. And so we used to pour them side by side, and the problem was that we found out people, they wanted to pick a winner and a loser. Yep. It wasn't that they could appreciate them both and 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 appreciate the differences. They they wanted to know which one they liked more than the other one. And so yeah. we stopped doing that. <laughs> well, I appreciated both of these. No, yeah. I like that, that you said that. That was yeah. important. When yeah. you said that, I went, oh, okay, that's good. You know, cool. there's a reason that computers have digital logic because that's kind of the way our brains, right. human brains yeah. that way a lot. Yeah. Well, we, we like yes, no things. And, right. and during all the time we've been doing this podcast, there, you know, there are no doubt that we say things. We'll say something. John will go, "What? Can you explain that?" Or John will ask a question, and I'll roll my eyes and go, "Come on, John, you don't know that." But the fact is, is John's a consumer, right? And you know, uh, and, he's and never so, made a wine. He's never worked in a tasting right, room. Yeah. You know, um, so and the same thing. Yeah. Um, you know, we have to use it to something technical. You got to explain it. I've so. been to plenty of tasting rooms. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've never worked in one. <laughs> All right. Awesome. All right. Thanks, uh, guys. Much thanks, everybody. Thanks, Larry. Much appreciated. Yeah. Drink right. more Chardonnay. And we will <laughs> right? talk to you guys next yeah. week. Thanks so much. Awesome. You guys want to keep these?